You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. I want to jump into Revelation, and last week Marty introduced the book, and he did a great job. This week, I want to take one more sermon, and we're going to stand back at kind of a very high level, and we're going to look at the book as a whole. How should we understand it? What's going on here? So that when we dive into the text, we will be able to do that with a good frame of reference. Because we're going to do that today, I want to forewarn you, this is going to be an academic sermon. This is going to be more up in your head, big kind of concepts and ideas, and I'll try to ratchet it down and tie things down so that it makes sense, but it's important for us to get a hold of what we're going to talk about today because what we're going to navigate here is how should we understand apocalyptic literature as a whole and the book of Revelation specifically? How should we understand where it's coming from? And specifically, I want to talk about where is John getting his stuff? And the reason why I want to talk about that is because for a lot of us, the book of Revelation is weird, especially in light of the other New Testament books. The other New Testament books are letters. They're correspondence between people, and, and so they feel and read that way. And these are books that, are, that feel and read, um, they're written by people who are trying to understand the worldview that we think from, not so much just Eastern, but they're trying to incorporate these Western ideas. Revelation stands in contrast to all of that stuff, and if we don't understand what's happening with the book, we can start to try to divorce it from the rest of all this foundational material that it's built around, and then all of a sudden, we start making it really weird. And, and we start talking about tribulations and millenniums and how long are they and when are they and what is it. And we start trying to put it into our world. And what's interesting is every generation of the church that has done that thinks that Revelation was written for their time. So anytime any nation that's from the East rises up, we're like, oh, it's Revelation. And, oh. and so, you know, when the European Union started and they did the Euro, you know, the Unified, all the United States churches were like, oh, this is Revelation, New World Order, One World Government. For the first readers of Revelation, Europe wasn't even East. It was North. <laughs> so I don't think that John had a vision of a group of people sitting in the Pacific Northwest of the United States being worried about the European Union. We cannot understand, this is my central premise for the entire series, we cannot understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. Does that make sense? And I think Marty articulated this really, really well last week when he said, you know, these apocalyptic books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation were not written to say you can survive it because 4,000 years from now something really cool is going to happen. That's not how this book was written. I mean, think about it. If you, for you married couples, let's say you were struggling in your marriage, it's really bad, you're really struggling. You come into my office for counseling and I'm like, you know what, I know it's bad. I know, but in 4,000 years, God is going to do something really cool. So, that don't make no sense. None, none. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? 
that's not what the book of Revelation is. It is hope for the people that are there in the first century, in Asia Minor, in the midst of a tremendous persecution. And that's real to them. And it's pulling from ideas, concepts, word pictures that already exist, that are already things that the people that are reading it understand. And that's important for us because those metaphors and ideas are tied to things that they already get. And we've got to know that so that we don't try to make this about Russia tampering with the Trump vote. Ah, it's revelation fulfilled. No, 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 no. So where's John getting his stuff? This is what we're going to wrestle with. Where is this coming from and why does this matter for us? And, and so we'll try to tie this down. Now, first of all, I want to say this. John is primarily getting his stuff from already established biblical apocalyptic works. Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. He's primarily getting his stuff from there. Secondarily, he's getting his stuff from other extra-biblical, like stuff that's not in the Bible, of Jewish apocalyptic literature. Which we get really antsy when you start talking about that kind of stuff, but the reality is... John quotes other books that are real documents, real things that were part of the the Christian and the Jewish world that they were reading, but they're not in the Bible. You're like, they were reading books that weren't even in the Bible? Do you understand they didn't even have the New Testament? Like, they didn't even have it. It wasn't wasn't written. (laughs) They didn't have it. The, The New Testament wasn't even canonized until 325 right? They didn't have it. So were they reading these things? Yeah. Do you read magazines? Did you read The Shack? Like you should have. It's a great book. Great book. Extra biblical writing, though. How dare you? So they're getting this stuff from extra biblical works, okay? Now, these other Jewish apocalyptic books are known as a group of literature called pseudepigrapha. And if you've played in the academic world of the Bible for a while, you get pretty uptight about pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha means false names. So these are books that are written under a false name. doesn't mean that they're right or wrong in their content. It means that they're written under a false name. Okay? The reason why they were written under a false name is because the author of the, of the document, whatever author it is, is trying to name drop. They're trying to pull the authority of the name that they're using. So you have all these things like Ezra and Enoch and all these different books that are Jewish apocalyptic books, but they're not written by these people. They're written by somebody lots of years later that is trying to throw back to uh, leverage the authority of that name to give what they're writing credibility. That's what they're doing. And it's part of why these books don't make it into the canon of Scripture, because we can't validate the author. Does that make sense? It's also why it's important that Revelation, as an apocalyptic book, did make it into the Bible, because we can validate the author, right? The other thing that makes Revelation unique, and this is important for you and me, is that in apocalyptic literature, they 
there's this story with all these big, grandiose images and pictures and metaphors and dragons and swords and pestilence and killing and disease. It's like an action movie to the hilt, right? It's like an ancient version of Game of Thrones. Um, and so uh, this big story... Well, then, and traditionally in apocalyptic literature, there's this one cataclysmic event that changes the tide in the story. And that's what we're moving towards. What you have to understand with Revelation is what makes it unique is that John's appeal isn't to some cataclysmic event that's coming. It's to the empty tomb. The reason why we can stand today in hope is because of the empty tomb. And that's so important because that doesn't change. That event has already happened. And because it, it, he's going to pull all kinds of lessons that he's going to tie back to this. Like, why does that give us hope? Because in your darkest moments, God says, I've been there already. And even death can't conquer my kingdom. These families, these first readers of this book are not people who were trying to wrestle with whether or not they were going to go float the river. These are people whose children were asking them the question, Dad, are we going to get killed today? Like, that's a different conversation. And the parents had to say, maybe. I don't know. Different place. And somehow this book brought hope to them. Not because in 4,000 years God's going to do something cool, but because the tomb's empty. Are you with me? This is his appeal. So let's jump into this, and I want to wrestle with where he's getting his stuff and what that teaches us, okay? So Revelation chapter 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Okay, so we should probably stop there because this whole tribulation thing is a big deal in the end times conversation, right? And if you're, not, if you're not righteous enough, if you're not holy enough, then when the church gets raptured out, you don't go. And you got to stay here, and you face the tribulation. What does John say that the tribulation, when does John say that the tribulation is? He's a partner in it. Like he's not writing for us in 2017 going, you better get ready. And we leverage this. The church world leverages this kind of thinking because we divorce it from its context. We leverage this to say, you better be righteous or else. And we make people afraid. Like they follow God out of fear. But the problem is, the New Testament says that perfect love casts out fear. So any time that we're using the Bible to control people with fear, we are mishandling the Word of God. And I know that a lot of people read the Left Behind series and they loved it and that's fine. Read it, love the movie, whatever. I'm just telling you, fear-mongering is not how the kingdom of God goes forward. Can anybody agree with me on that? Okay, that's important. You can say amen in church. Right. That's even a Christian word. 
This is so important for us to get a hold of because John isn't trying to make people afraid. He's trying to give them hope. And if that is authorial intent of this book, if that is what the author intended to do, then that is what we must do with it also. So it's important. Now, let's continue on. Partner in the tribulation of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. By the way, he's on the island of Patmos. Why is he on the island of Patmos? Why is he there? Yeah, like, because he was exiled, right? Okay, that is a church tradition taken from the writings of Origen who lived in the 300s. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong, but there's an equally valid church tradition that he wasn't there exiled, but that he was simply there because he was burdened for where he saw things heading for the church, and he wanted to go fast and pray and spend time with the Lord and see how he should teach them. Which makes sense with the rest of the book. Now, you pick whichever view you want, but I would just throw this at you. How many exiles, prison exiles, prison sentences did Rome let people off of? Was Rome in the habit of letting people out of their prison sentences? Just a thought. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, I want to say this at this point. We are not, in this series, going to cover the seven churches of Revelation for two reasons. Number one, because we've already done it. We did this series a couple of years ago. The link is in your notes. You can go right back to our website and watch it. I had a lot less gray hair here. Uh, so you can watch that series. It's good. Uh, it's good series. It really is. Preaching is phenomenal. No, the, the content that we were able to pull from is really solid, and, it, and it's really grounded in history. So it's really a good series. I would really highly recommend you go watch it, but we're not going to do it. The other, the other reason why we're not going to do it is because when preachers do Revelation, that's the part that they pour all their energy into because it's the easiest part to preach. It's the easiest part of Revelation to preach. So we get the seven churches a lot, way more than you do the rest of the book, so we're not giving it to you. Um, there's lots of places you can go, even in our own, in our own sermon back, uh, groups, you can get them. So, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay, so pay attention to these details, Okay. Clothed with a long white robe with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Which I don't know how he does that if his tongue's a sword. Because how do you, how do you, fear not? How do you form that word? Or maybe he's pulling from something. Okay. Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. So who, who is the son of man character that he sees? Who is he, the first and the last? Who is that? It's Jesus, Son of Man, first and the last. But 
Who's the first and the last specifically? God. So this character says, we're going to come back to this in a minute, why this is important. This character says, I am the son of man and I am God. Are you with me? Say amen and we'll move on. All right. I got to teach you people how to be in church. Come on now. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. What is John's appeal to hope? The empty tomb. This son of man, this beginning and the end, this first and the last, this ever living one says, I died and I'm back. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right there for the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are seven fixed stars that in the ancient world, they lived their world around the stars. They didn't live their world around a Gregorian calendar like we do. They lived their world around the stars. Everything was moved by the lunar calendar. It was the stars and the moon and all this stuff. Everything was that way. Which, by the way, is more accurate, but that's another conversation. Um, that's why we have to have a leap year and they don't. Um, cultures that still use a lunar calendar. But they, they have these seven fixed stars. These stars never moved. The, he says these are the seven angels of the seven churches. Why would he say that? Remember last week, Marty talked about the angels with the eyes all over them. Does God see? Well, not only does God see, but God's always been fixed. He's always been constant. He's never moved. Make sense? He's, that's what he's saying, but he's saying it from an apocalyptic perspective. Now, all these images, white wool and fire and bronze and the sun, uh, tongue like a sword and all these different details that are given, where is John getting his stuff? It feels like he's got this really weird, like, dude, you were on LSD. That's, that's how revelation happened. You went on a bad acid trip and you started writing stuff. That's like revelation and all of the music of the 70s. That is how it happened. So uh, it's weird what's going on there. Now, I'm going to show you some of the connections in that passage to the, to the book of Daniel. I want to show you some connections to the book of Ezekiel. And there's a, all of these are in your notes. I just want to look at a few of them because I want to make sure that you understand that John is already pulling material from established places that already have an established uh, set of information about what they mean. There's an understanding about what they already are in the people who read it. We don't have to come up with it on our own. It already exists in their culture. That's what we have to fight to understand. Make sense? Probably not. Okay. So here's some connections to Ezekiel. The throne vision in Revelation 4. And I went into the throne and there was God and, and the seven seals and the 24 elders and the four angels that are flying around the throne all saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All of this stuff. John's so creative. Or he read Ezekiel 1. Right? Which John's a good Jewish boy raised in a good Jewish home in a good Jewish community. Of course he would have read this stuff already. Next one. The book of life, the books uh, that are described in Revelation 5. That's Ezekiel 2 and 3. There's nothing new there. Next one. The four plagues. Revelation 6, 1 through 8. That's Ezekiel 5. 
Next one. The slain under the altar. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. What in the world is he talking about? Slain? Well, he's probably just pulling out of Ezekiel 6. Uh, one more. The wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God. Where is the wrath of God is being poured out on the nations? Where is John getting this stuff? Yeah, it's, it's Ezekiel. All, there's, a, there's a ton more of these in your notes, and I don't want to take time to bore you with all this stuff. What I want you to see is all of these weird concepts and ideas, they're not new. This already had a frame of reference, a context, an understanding, and a meaning to the people who were reading it for the first time. John's not making this stuff up. And that's important because we can't understand what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. So what we need to keep wrestling with is, what did it mean then? Then we can begin to wrestle with, how do we apply that? With me? Now, I want to show you something, another way that we can understand this um, idea of John connecting dots to other places, okay? Uh, Daniel chapter 7 has a really interesting passage, um, and I want to read it for you. It's, this is Daniel's vision. See if this sounds vaguely familiar. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who's the Ancient of Days? God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Hmm. John's so creative. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So it's like a wheelchair with big flames out the back. A stream of fire is issued, and it came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The books. We've heard about books. I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now, the horn is a reference back to a guy by the name of Antiochus IV, who changed his name to Epiphanes. If you ever want to see a man that's full of himself, change your name to Epiphanes. Go research the meaning. I am the arrival. Uh... When I walk into a room, God shows up. <laughs> Apparently, God didn't like him so much. All right. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This beast, dragon, all these things, this is not John's idea. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, underline that. Who is that? We would say Jesus. You guys are like, I want to say Jesus, but I'm afraid. Um, don't be afraid. We would say Jesus, and the reason we would say Jesus is because Jesus claimed this title for himself. This is a label he gave to himself. Until that time, this was simply a Messiah. And the Messiah in the Jewish mind wasn't necessarily, and this is still true today, there's no need in the Jewish mind for the Messiah to be God. It's just a really, really, really good Jew. 
Right? The, the Messiah is kind of the quintessential definition of a Jew. A good man, but a man. Make sense? That's, so ancient of days comes, that's God. The Son of Man, yeah, that's Messiah. But that's not God. Okay, so hold on to that thought. I saw one that came, and, and, he, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So you can see these two distinct figures. These two distinct figures. Okay. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, here's why this matters for us today, because in Matthew 28, Jesus comes to his boys and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's he claiming? Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even till the very end of the age. Why? Because the kingdom of the Son of Man cannot be destroyed. He's claiming Daniel 7 for himself. Now here's what John does with it. Let's go back and reread that passage again, Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Sound familiar? There's one like a son of man. Where, where's he getting his stuff from? Daniel 7. Good job. Clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool. Does that sound familiar? Like snow. His eyes were like a, flat, a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, who's the first and the last? God. In Daniel 7, there are two different people. In Revelation 1, they're the same. Do you see the movement? How is John able to get away with that? Well, because there is a progression in apocalyptic literature that moves the Messiah from more than just a really righteous Jew to something that's bigger than that. And it comes in several sources. I want to give you an example of one. And this is a book. This is not a Bible book. This is one Enoch, which is a, it's a pseudepigrapha, but I want to show you the mind of the people who were reading this, okay, out of one Enoch. And there I saw one who was like a head of days, Sound familiar? Written after Daniel, by the way. Where's he getting his stuff from? They're pulling off of the same imagery. And his head was like a white wool. Sound familiar? I'll tell you this. Whatever God looks like, his hair is white. And with him, there was another whose face had the appearance of a man, and his face was full of grace. Who's that? Next slide. Like one of the holy angels, and I asked one of the holy angels who went with me and showed me all the secrets about that son of man. Shut up. All of this stuff lines up. 
who he was and where he came from and why he was sent with the head of days. And he answered me and said to me, this is the son of man who has righteousness and with whom righteousness dwells. So he has righteousness, but righteousness dwells with him. Okay, so that's a leap. He will reveal all the treasures of that which is secret, for the Lord of spirits has chosen him, and through his uprightness, his lot has surpassed all before the Lord of spirits forever. And this son of man, whom you have seen, will rouse the kings and the powerful from their resting places and the strong from their thrones. And he will loose the reins of the strong and will break the teeth of the sinners. And he will cast down the kings from their thrones and from their kingdoms, for they do not exalt him. Now, there's this shift in what Enoch says. Daniel says that they're two distinct people. This son of man character, he's, he's a really good Jew. Enoch, later, and we see the movement, Enoch says there's two separate characters, but this son of man character is not just a really good Jew. He's more than any other human ever. His righteousness has surpassed all of mankind, right? John says, I'll tell you why. Because God and the son of man, they're the same. Do you see how this movement happens? Where's John drawing stuff from? He's drawing it from all of these other things, all of these other sources. Why does that matter to you? Why did we just waste 30 minutes of your life? Right? Here's why. A couple of reasons why, and then we'll move towards the Lord's table. Number one, because I want you to understand the importance of what it means for us to set Revelation back into the context that it was in when it was written so that we can understand where he was coming from with all these images that he's pulling from things that already exist. He's not making this stuff up, and we're not trying to get into the mind of John. We're trying to get into the mind of the people who had read Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and Enoch, and 1st Enoch, and 2nd Enoch, and Ezra, and 4th Ezra, and 3rd Ezra, and 2nd Ezra. Like, all of this literature already has an understanding attached to it, and John is building on that. So that's one reason why we need to do it. The other reason is because I think it's really important for us to recognize that the reason that John doesn't have to come up with any new material is because God's people have been here before. God's people have already walked this road, this persecution road. And believe me, by the end of Revelation, you're going to look at this and go, man, they had it bad and they did. But John was able to write this book of hope to them because it's not the first time God's people have been there. So we don't have to panic. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to lose our peace. And that one deep truth is worth wrestling with all this other information to get to. And so with that in mind, just a reminder John's appeal for why they can have hope and the fact that it's been here before is not the end of things. It's the empty tomb. It's important for us to hang on to. So we're going to move to the Lord's table with that. So if you're passing out communion, go ahead and grab it. If you're new with us, we have an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake, but we want you to hold the elements till the end. We'll take them together. So while they're passing that out, we want to work through some implications of this message. Implication number one, 
God's sovereignty invites us to defiantly hope in the midst of chaos. The reality of the book of Revelation isn't so much about tomorrow, it's about the hurt and the anxiety of today. It's about the concerns of this moment and this time and this place for the first readers. And what John is appealing to is, look, God hasn't lost his place in the universe. That's why he opens his book with a vision of the throne room of God. I've been to the throne room of God, and he's still on it. Domitian isn't there. So don't freak out. I got some, thank you. Don't freak out, it's okay. Next implication. This is a book of hope for the people in their day. Understanding that helps me find hope in my day. We cannot know what this book means for us until we know what it means for the people who first read it. And that's important. Next implication. My circumstances don't determine the sovereignty of God. And I know for a lot of us, when we endure bad things, and we all have ups and downs, and some of the stuff that we've had is tragic. It is. My circumstances don't determine the, the sovereignty of God. Often we get into this position where we, we ask two fundamental questions. First question is, okay, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God mad at me? Which has really no bearing on the reality of what's going on. The other question is, God, do you even care? Do you even notice? Do you even see what I'm enduring? Do you even, are you even there? And that's important for us to recognize. Our circumstances do not determine God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty determines how we should see our circumstances. That's why David can say, in the midst of tremendous suffering, this life is momentary and full of troubles. That's why John can say, we have hope for today because even death can't keep us stuck. So go ahead, Rome, take your best shot. And Rome did. And the Christians, within just a couple of hundred years, upended the Roman Empire. The most powerful nation in history got ruined because of Jesus. And I mean ruined in a good way. Their whole value system got upended. Last implication. We have to stay connected to people who will consistently pull us back to this reality. You know why? Because if you try to stay connected to this, I can have hope in bad circumstances by yourself, you'll fail by yourself. You need people that stand outside of your circumstances to be able to help you not lose sight of what's going on because sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. I can tell you a story. <clears throat> so 4th of July, uh, my family went um, to this place called Blue Lagoons. It's up by Beauville in Idaho. Um, you go to Moose Creek Reservoir and go past it. And we were just swimming, fishing, spending the day together, picnicking. When we got back, Kelly's car had a flat tire. <clears throat> and so um, Caleb, my 18-year-old who just graduated from high school, uh, jumped out of the car and he and I started working on getting this 
tire change. So I get the jack, and he starts working on trying to bring the spare tire down. And I jack, I get the lugs loose, and I start jacking the car up. And he's trying to bring, well, the, the spare is stuck. And um, so he gets underneath there and starts shaking it loose. The car's jacked up. And it, it, I don't think either one of us was really paying attention to what the other one was doing. So I get the car up in the air. I get the car jacked up in the air, and I pull the flat tire off, and the jack gave out. And it fell onto my son. As a dad, I've never been so scared in my whole life. I came around the back end of the car, and all I could see was his feet. Everything else was under the car. And you know how when, um, when somebody gets hit in the head really hard, they kind of they flex, they go stiff like that, and their toes point, you know? His, that's, what, that's what he was, that's all I could see was his toes. So all I could have, like, I, I'm, I'm like, my, my son's dead. He's dead. And, and it's my fault. Because I pulled the tire off and I knew it was a bad idea. I knew it was dumb to do that when it was just going to be the jack and him under the car. I knew it was a bad idea and I still did it and then it happened and the car fell. And you know how you have in those two second windows in times like that, you have hours and hours and hours of thoughts. And I'm looking at what I assume is my dead son. And I'm like, how, how, how do I move past that? How do I, I can't, I can't do this without, like, that's not gonna be, no, no. See, the first readers of Revelation lived in that reality every day. They watched their friends and family members, their children, be tortured and butchered for their faith. And this book was written to bring hope to those places. And once we understand that, we can begin to understand what Revelation is really all about. My son's fine. I know you guys are like torturing me with this thing about your son. He's fine. Uh, his upper body was on the side of the car that still had the tire on it, so it was elevated, so when it went back, it didn't crush him. He did, he's pretty banged up, pretty bruised up, though. I got back in the truck after it was all over, and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Like, <sighs> today, this happened Tuesday, today's the first day I've been able to tell this story without crying. And it was messy business. Those are the moments that Revelation is written for. Revelation is not written for Judgment Day. Revelation is written for tragedy. And 
that's how we have to understand it. And John's appeal isn't we win. John's appeal is the tomb's empty. That's John's appeal. And so this reminder of communion every week is a reminder of the same message that John is trying to give his people in the first century. That death doesn't have the final word that we can hope. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you that though the world tries to throw all kinds of things at us, the tomb is still empty. You are still on the throne. And God, I uh, thank you for your grace as we wrestle through how to make sense of the world that we live in. I thank you for the example of these seven churches in Asia Minor and of guys like John who are in the midst of tremendous fear, finding hope and peace. And God, we, we speak their testimony because of their faithfulness still today. Lord, give us that kind of depth and fortitude. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.